Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. It's a NewsBuzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Uh, programming note on Monday on this program will focus on the governor's and the uh, Iowa Attorney General's bills to raise penalties related to fentanyl crimes as a way to deal with the spike in fentanyl overdoses. Well, let's find out about some other health-related proposals at the State House right now with Robin Upsall. Robin covers the state legislature and politics for Iowa Capital Dispatch. Hello again, Robin. Hi, nice to talk with you again. Number of things you've been covering I want to ask you about. Iowa lawmakers considering eliminating a requirement that schools inform students about HPV vaccine, a vaccine which prevents certain cancers. Uh, let's start off by having you uh, remind us what HPV is, how it can cause cancer, and why we have the vaccine. Yep. So human papillomavirus is a STD, sexually transmitted disease, uh, that often goes away on its own, but in some cases it can... Uh, develop cancers uh, in, yeah, within sexual organs. Uh, it's the most commonly transmitted STD and what uh, Iowa human growth and development and health courses are currently required to do is inform students that a HPV vaccine is available. The vaccine is not um, given out or uh, administered in schools, but it's just a requirement that uh, students are informed that a vaccine exists, which uh, has something like a potential for preventing 90% of the development of cancers caused by HPV. Mm -hmm. What then is the change being proposed and why? Yep. So the change being proposed is just striking the requirement to inform students of the HPV vaccine availability. Um, it has come up both in the standalone legislation, but a group that's been very involved at the Capitol lately called Moms for Liberty have brought it up in some of the other pieces of legislation regarding uh, health and human development curriculum in schools uh, because their argument is that vaccines as a increasingly political topic following the COVID-19 pandemic should not be something that's discussed uh with students by teachers, it should be something that's limited to discussions with a family and with medical providers. Mm -hmm. Now, this change would bar, would remove that requirement, but if I'm understanding it right, Robin, it would not prevent um, people in health classes, uh, students in health classes, mm -hmm. from learning about it. It it can be talked about, it just wouldn't be required. Is that is that the essence exactly. of it? Exactly. So tell us about the opponents of this change. I understand medical professionals are not in favor of this change. Yep. So many medical professionals say that because the HPV vaccine has such a um, strong basis in research of showing that it prevents cancers from developing, that it should be taught about and that it should be a component of uh, sex education and health education. Uh, it's also something that some of the uh, proponents of the bill see uh, 
seem to um, have some confusion about vaccines being administered in schools, and that's why there was a push um, for this legislation, but they uh, were trying to reassure people that this is only information being given to students, and that is information that they say could save lives. Yeah. Uh, as you referenced, the echoes here of the partisan divide over the uh, COVID vaccines. Uh, here again, we have science that is clear, right, uh, that these this vaccine prevents uh, cancers um, uh, in both uh, males, females, regardless of gender. Um, so it is an echo of, of the same partisan divide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And same with that. Um, it's sort of a, yeah, a discussion on whether uh, institutions like schools uh, should have a say in something that uh, a partisan divide exists over, right? Um, that saying vaccines, even if it, uh, even if there is research showing that it can prevent cancers, that that is an inherently political topic and something that should not be discussed, again, outside of uh, family decisions and outside of decisions with the direct medical providers for those individuals. Mm -hmm. Robin, what is your sense uh, about how much support would be behind this change, removing the requirements and, and the stage at which it is in in the state at the state house. Yep. So it didn't move forward. Uh, the full education committee will discuss it next, and it looks like this is an issue, at least the sense that I got, that has um, support from the majority party, uh, while Democrats are opposing it. Like many of the things we've seen. Uh, introduced. Whether it will survive uh, going through both chambers and floor debates is a little uh, less clear. Another health issue uh, advancing at the State House, a Senate subcommittee advancing a version of the governor's health care omnibus bill, which does not include the -the over-the-counter birth control provision in the original proposal she had. Uh, explain that provision, the birth, col- birth control measure, and, and why uh, you think it's been removed here. Yes. So the original proposition that uh, Governor Kim Reynolds outlined uh, would increase access to hormonal birth control medications, pretty much providing them as over-the-counter or behind-the-counter, where in other cases you would have to consult a doctor, uh, having it be a... Um, more involved process, pretty much. This is also something that Republican legislators have brought up from Iowa at the federal level. Um, The governor proposed it as a way um, for talking about decreasing unplanned pregnancies, right? But uh, that part was removed um, because there is some uh, controversy among some groups who are opposed to uh, those methods of family planning. However, it is something that Republicans, uh, at least in the meeting, said that they were not necessarily opposed to, but that they just did not want to include it in this bill. Mm -hmm. There are other parts of this bill that are strongly supported with with bipartisan support? So the birth control provision um, was something that... uh, Democrats and family planning 
advocates were really excited about, but they are also in support of the positions like expanding. Uh, there are rural centers of excellence that um, will be opening in Iowa under the proposal, as well as OBGYN uh, fellowships, which are things people uh, in healthcare providers are very excited to see. Mm-hmm. There's a House bill here, too. How does that fit into this conversation? Yeah, so the House bill does have the birth control access. It's just a separate version um, of the legislation uh, that includes the full provisions, uh, unlike the the Senate bill. Yeah. Uh, We've also spoken this week about um, something that goes by the acronym MOMS, the MOMS program, more options for maternal support. How does that fit into what you've just described to us? Yep. So the MOMS program uh, is currently funded at half a million dollars, and that amount would increase to $2 million. Uh, and that money is available through grants for abortion alternative centers, or sometimes referred to as crisis pregnancy centers. These are places that provide um, that can provide services like ultrasounds or health planning uh, for expectant parents. Uh, in the provision, it would also include the grant program to be allowed to fund fatherhood initiatives to get fathers more involved in the lives of uh, their children that are on the way. Um, this has been somewhat controversial because these programs often do not have um, licensed medical professionals necessarily working at them. And some people have reported cases, uh, including some who talked with uh, on a Planned Parenthood of Iowa um, press conference earlier this week about being misinformed about their options and being uh specifically told not to pursue abortions, uh, given misinformation about abortions, or having their family members contacted without their consent to tell them that this uh, the pregnant person is considering terminating their pregnancy. Mm. And finally, uh, we're speaking early on Thursday afternoon, Robin, and in just a short time you'll be going to uh, the governor's signing of a uh, medical malpractice bill into law, which uh, puts caps on it. Remind us, before we say goodbye, remind us what that new law is about. Yep. So uh, this is a limit on liabilities for medical malpractice cases. Uh, so liabilities are already capped at 250000 for non-economic damages without uh, permanent, substantial, or fatal injuries. What it would cap the cost at for cases where there are permanent, substantial, or fatal injuries, so loss of impairment of the bodily function, uh, disfigurement, things like that, that would be at $1 million for clinics and individual doctors and $2 million for hospitals. Uh, those are limits that Republicans and the governor have offered, have argued will help rural hospitals stay in business saying that some of these um, medical malpractice lawsuits uh, are making the rural health care shortage in Iowa worse. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Robin Upsall, so much to keep track of, so much activity at the State House. Thank you for giving us a view on a number of proposals and, uh, as you just mentioned, soon to be law concerning health care. Uh, Robin uh, is from Iowa Capital Dispatch reporting on the state legislature and politics. Until next time, Robin. Great. Thank you so much. Coming up after a short break, IPR's Clay Masters, who covered the visit to Iowa this week by former Vice President Mike Pence. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about the Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Well, after relative quiet, well, at least compared to the last presidential election cycle four years ago, the 2024 race for the Republican presidential nomination is heating up. It's early days, of course, more than 20 months before the general election in 2024. But unlike uh, the case of the Democrats, for Republicans, the traditional leadoff attention Iowa has held in the past, remains in place. Former Vice President Mike Pence was in Iowa Wednesday in eastern Iowa. Also this week, uh, former South Carolina Governor, U.N. Secretary, former Secretary Nikki Haley announced she's running for president. She has plans to visit Iowa as well next week. Clay Masters joins me now, IPR senior political reporter and, of course, Morning Edition host. Hi, Clay. Hey, good afternoon, Ben. Well, uh, here we go, Clay, on this election cycle. Pence's visit comes as Republicans start testing the waters uh, a year out from the caucuses. Tell us about this visit by Pence, uh, where uh, Congresswoman Ashley Henson teamed up with the former vice president. Yeah, so this was on the west side of Cedar Rapids. It was at a a pizza ranch restaurant, uh, and these have been a, a staple, at least the not so much the last presidential cycle with the Democrats, but uh, Republicans like to go to pizza ranches across the state when they're doing their, you know, 99 county tours because they can make a room look pretty full regardless of how many people show up. And so Mike Pence was there. Uh, he was introduced by Ashley Hinson and uh, the, the congresswoman from the, the new second congressional district. And he was there on the same day that a uh, the Eighth Circuit Court of the U.S. Court of Appeals in St. Paul, Minnesota, was hearing from parents that sued Linmar schools, uh, asking them to block the district's transgender student policy. So Mike Pence actually started the day up in Minnesota where that court case was being heard. And uh, there, there's no outcome of it yet. But then he also made the trip to Cedar Rapids to appear with Congresswoman Ashley Henson. And uh, Pence had some some harsh words for this uh, Linmar policy, didn't he? Yeah, he did. And, um, you know, this is all happening at the same time that 
as you mentioned at the outset of this conversation, that Republican presidential uh, candidates are coming. And I should clarify, Mike Pence has not said that he's running for president yet, but this is what Iowa is all about, right, Ben? I mean, this is a time for even if you're thinking about running for president, you need to to get here, get in front of crowds, hone whatever stump speech you're going to have, maybe talk to donors while you're here. And yeah, this is a chance for uh, Pence to talk about Stuff that's been in the news a lot uh, nationally with school boards and transgender policy. He did have some fairly uh, harsh words about it called the this uh, dangerous. Uh, they're suing over a policy that was adopted last year that allows students uh, there at that school district to, to use gender affirming names or pronouns without including their, their parents. And Pence called it said it's not just bad policy. This is crazy. Um, but, you know, there were there were more than 50 protesters outside uh, with signs in support of LGBTQ children and youth. And, you know, they were there talking about how not every parent is going to be understanding of of a child who's going through the, the very difficult uh, transition that they might be having in their life. And we're saying that this is just the, the former vice president punching down and and taking advantage of something that was going on in the courts uh, that that has effects on trans children who are hearing this and are, are facing a challenging time in their life as they're trying to figure out who they are as they're becoming, you know, moving into adulthood at some point. This came at the same time that the former South Carolina governor and U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley, announced she's running for president. Uh, Comment on that. Yeah, so Nikki Haley announced this week that she's running for president. She's going to be here on Monday. And as these kinds of things go after the vice president or whoever the candidate is that's there to speak— they, they meet with reporters. They don't say anything about running for president when they're addressing the crowd that's there. And then reporters, national press, of course, has, has come to pay attention to a former vice president that might announce he's running for president. There's lots of national uh, issues that come up in this kind of scrum with reporters while the press is encircling the candidate. And at the very end of that conversation with the press, somebody blurted out, you know, are are what do you think about Nikki Haley getting into the race? And and Mike Pence had a comment that she's been doing. She did a great job in their administration, and he said, you know, with kind of a smile, she may have more company soon in the race for president. I promise, folks in Iowa and all of you, that I'll keep you posted. So it's kind of a wink and a nod mm-hmm. to w- what <laughs> Iowa yep. is, at least for the Republicans, still at this point. I wonder, Clay, can you tell us how Pence and Haley compare? when it comes to the type of Republican voter they are courting? Well, you remember that when the Republicans are running for president and they come to Iowa, the evangelical Christian uh, base within the Republican Party in Iowa uh, is is outsized from other parts of the country. And that gets a lot of attention. And certainly with a unprecedented move here where a former president, Donald Trump, has announced that he's running for president, I would imagine uh, people will be talking about candidates that are running, uh, talking about civil rights for LGBTQ people as they're in the state to try to court some of those voters. Um, You know, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, 
is somebody who is widely expected to run at some point. He has introduced legislation in Florida that's similar to some of the stuff that we're seeing in the Iowa legislature uh, this legislative session. So I think these kinds of issues are things that people are going to be talking about as they come to the state to try to court some of those, those voters. Now, former President Donald Trump already has a lot of support still kind of baked in because of uh, you know, he was a former president and did quite well here in Iowa during the last two general elections. Uh, we'll see if if people have an appetite for, for a new Republican presidential candidate. Uh, the former uh, Republican candidate for governor in Arizona, Carrie Lake, was here uh, last weekend. I went and just talked with some people who were attending that to kind of get a read of what people are thinking. And the appetite was there for possibly different people to be the nominee because of all the baggage they see that the former president, Donald Trump, carries with him. Yeah. And it'll be interesting, Clay, to see how Republicans, other Republicans undoubtedly joining uh, this race for the GOP nomination, uh, how they will navigate waters with um, uh, former President Trump in those waters. That's right. And you know, at the when we started this conversation, you were talking about how it was a little slower getting going than it was four years ago for the Democrats when they were coming to the state ahead of the 2020 Iowa caucuses. I mean, I think back to 2015, 2016, you got to call it a two-year cycle when you're talking about Iowa politics. But, I mean, I remember in January of 2015 covering just this large group of Republicans who were here in the state in this kind of a like what we call like a cattle call, where a bunch of candidates get up, they give their stump speech. And it was, I can't, the day was so long. It started in the morning and it ended late in the evening. Donald Trump was there. Uh, he was kind of not even considered a legitimate candidate at that point. But I, it is going to be really interesting to see, because that whole cycle was all about, well, who's going to be the person? People thought Donald Trump's not going to be the candidate. And Iowa politicking ahead of the caucuses was all about who's that candidate going to be. And then the race went on from there. And, you know, Iowa was out of the rearview mirror by that point. It's going to be really interesting to see how the last eight years have changed the party. Uh, there was a lot of election denialism coming up uh, from people that I spoke to at that Kerry Lake uh, event. You know, she lost her gubernatorial race in Arizona. Uh, but it's just there's a, a very different kind of vibe in these early uh, events that I've covered that it's going to be interesting to see how that kind of takes shape as the months go by this year. Yeah, it would be a great trivia question, even for political buffs to say who won that 2016 um, GOP <laughs> caucus. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm thinking San, Santorum and Cruz. Am I right? I'm not sure. Yeah, t Ted Cruz was uh, 2016. And in 2012, you'll remember they announced that it was Mitt Romney. And then a few, like I think like a week later, it came out that it was Rick Santorum. So uh, that, that's okay. kind of, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Trivia time. <laughs> Trivia time. All right. Uh, Clay Masters of Iowa Public Radio, thanks for your read on the very early in the game in the race for the GOP nomination for 2024. Thanks, Clay. You're welcome. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Quick conversations to end this news week. Well, Kirkwood Community College announced this week that it's cutting programs, faculty, and staff. Joining me now to tell us more, Vanessa Miller, higher ed reporter for the Gazette. Hi, Vanessa. Hi. Give us some details uh, on the announced cuts by Kirkwood. 
Uh, yeah, they announced uh, earlier this week that they are cutting, like you said, faculty and staff and programs, uh, ones that they say have low enrollment numbers and are costing more um, to them than what they're bringing in. So those two programs are the dental technology program and then one called energy production and distribution. Um, those are two programs that they say cost a lot and don't bring in a lot. Um, the energy production and distribution one focuses on like largely on like turbine, like wind turbine repair and has students sort of climbing these 2.5 megawatt wind turbines on campus. So um, so cutting those two things, and as part of that, they said they're eliminating 28 faculty and staff, and all of those were actual layoffs, not um, like positions cut through attrition, for example. The stated reason uh, in your article, uh, the quote, bringing future budgets in line with expected revenue, what are the revenue challenges Kirkwood is facing? Yeah, I mean, like so many, the enrollments are going down um, across. So this year, actually, some community colleges saw a slight uptick, but many, but many also have seen big losses in recent years. Now, this has been a trend since the recession, but COVID obviously hit community colleges hard, harder than even like private universities or public universities. So the um that is part of it they're looking at declines there they're looking at declines in state support which i mean that's kind of a a little different for the community colleges but that's been dropping specifically for the public universities but it's 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 across the board um inflation you know is cause is causing more costs to rise for various things it's harder to get workers because uh, we have such a low unemployment rate, so they're having to pay folks more. Competition is increasing, so there's a lot of, of reasons that, you know, their net revenue is facing some challenges. With these layoffs, program cuts, and so forth, uh, did they put a price tag on how much savings they will uh, achieve here? Um, no, they didn't specifically. They They said that there were, let's see, they did, um, oh yeah, they did say $1.5 million a year, in terms of what they would save from laying off the employees, but what they didn't specify is how much they would save by cutting the programs. Mm-hmm. I wonder, because Kirkwood is only one of many community colleges across the state, um, I assume other community colleges facing the same pressures, financial pressures you just described. Yeah, I mean, I think that they are. They haven't been quite um, as public, you know, or, or have had to announce um, as big of changes as Kirkwood has, but obviously Kirkwood also recently announced that it's closing its Iowa City campus and moving everything to its regional center there in Coralville. And earlier in the summer also announced that it's closing two of its 14 locations, its regional locations. So, um, so yeah, it's making big programmatic changes. And I should note that um, a recent audit that the state, you know, published uh, showed that Kirkwood's in an actual relatively strong financial position, but it's because of some of these big changes that it's made. So I think it's it's not like in the red. It's just it's just having to make the ch- changes to keep up with the, the headwinds it's facing. Right. Um, let's switch topics to the public university, the University of Iowa, which you cover. Um, and uh, <laughs> this is the uh, the latest on the UI Stead Family Children's Hospital. This is the 14-story cylindrical tower, impressive tower that popped up, well, right next to, uh, across the street from Kinnick Stadium in the middle of the 
the vast array of other UIHC buildings. It's been there five or six years, I guess. Another chapter in the story of its defective windows, uh, which were discovered not long after it opened um, a, a few years ago. What is the latest bad news here? Yeah, well, it sounds like they kind of they kind of hinted at this earlier, but they originally asked for to spend ten to fifteen million dollars replacing floors on, or sorry, windows on two floors um, that seemed to be cracking or damaged in some way, delaminating, um, and 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 said we're keeping tabs on this. We think there may be more that are affected, and then just earlier this week said that they are asking the Board of Regents to approve spending $45 million replacing damaged uh, windows on nine floors. So three through 11 instead of just four and five. So it, it seems that the scale of the problem is bigger than they originally expected. There's, there's also damaged windows on this bridge that connects the Children's Hospital to the main campus. Um, and they had to put up like protective uh, film and clips on all of these windows mm. to make sure there are no safety hazards. So that costs um, money as well. So, yeah, they're, it's a lot more expensive than they originally thought. Yeah. You, you quote the UI sources saying these windows are, quote, not performing as they should. <laughs> I guess. Right. Any details on, <laughs> on the lack of performance there? I wonder how a, how a window in this case doesn't perform well. Uh, right. Well, I mean, I think that what they've said publicly is that some are cracking, um, some are damaged, some, and delaminating means I think that two, if like the the window is made out of two parts put together, that they're coming apart, you know, kind of separating. Mm. So, um, so yeah, they're they're just not up to the standards that they expected. Um, at one point, the university confirmed they had to close the playground outside the children's hospital, and they have not responded to my repeated questions as to whether that. Um, playground remains closed and uh, how long it's been closed for. But obviously the concern there would be, you know, don't want a window yeah. to like fall out. <laughs> exactly right. Um, millions more in extra costs to f- fix these defective windows. Who has to fit the bill? Who has to foot the bill? That's controversial, too. That's in the courts. Yes. Yep. The University of Iowa recently sued uh, two contractors who were involved in installing the windows. Um, That lawsuit has been moved to arbitration, uh, which is kind of outlined in the original contract that the university had with those contractors. um, And it's obviously all been done behind closed doors. So it's unknown kind of where that process stands and if the contractors are going to be paying for any of it or not. But in the regent documents that they went to the board with asking to spend $45 million, they said they're going to pay for this out of the UIHC funds. So uh, that's obviously where it's coming from right now. I know they're hoping um, in time that they may recoup some of that through their court case. But again, it's all sort of happening behind the scenes. Right. Vanessa Miller of the Gazette keeping us uh, up to speed on higher ed news in the state. Vanessa, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Coming up after a short break, Carrie Johansson of the Iowa Environmental Council on a new tax coming soon at public charging stations for electric vehicles. When your news buzz continues here on River to River. Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine 
offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. It's a Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Iowa's electric vehicle owners will pay more at charging stations, this starting in July. So we have a few months. It's similar to a gas tax. Uh, the state is implementing an excise tax at public charging stations. And that is on top of an annual supplemental EV registration fee of $130. The Iowa Environmental Council is the largest environmental coalition in our state. It's a nonpartisan alliance of organizations, individuals aimed at protecting and preserving Iowa's environment. Carrie Johansson is the council's energy program director. We wanted her view on this. Carrie Johansson joins us. Hi. Hi, Ben. Thank you so much for having me today. Well, we want to tap into your expertise here. Give us some background on this new tax that drivers of EVs will be paying starting in July. How much will it be? Yeah, so this is a tax that was actually passed by the Iowa legislature back in 2019. Um, That was a time when people were really looking at the loss of revenue from a transition to electric vehicles. You know, right now, a lot of our roads are paid for through the gas tax, which obviously EV drivers um, do not pay and will not pay, which is a nice bonus of driving an EV. However, of course, everyone should um, pay their fair share for uh, maintaining the roads. And so um, in 2019, the legislature in Iowa passed both a new annual fee on EVs that folks pay when they register their vehicle every year. Um, And what's going to go into effect starting on July 1 is a tax at the the EV public charging station as well of 2.6 cents per kilowatt hour um, that you put into your electric vehicle from any public charging station. Mm-hmm. For an average driver, do you have a sense of how much that will add to the cost of driving an electric vehicle? So our estimate of the impact of this tax is not huge for an individual driver. Um, when I did this estimate, uh, when the bill was was being um, discussed, that added up to only about $13 per year for an average EV driver. Mm, okay, so how do you think this new tax may impact the adoption um, of EV cars, vehicles, the, the growth of installation, uh, the installation of more charging stations, if at all? Yeah, so that's where the concern of our organization really lies. Uh, the The impact of someone who actually might want to drive an EV car, this isn't going to be something that they maybe even notice, um, especially if they're doing the majority of their charging at home, um, which many people will be. At the same time, you know, for folks who might live in uh, multifamily housing or just don't have access to home charging, they will obviously see a a bigger impact from this than than people who can charge at home. The, The larger problem with this charging tax is that it requires a lot of reporting and um, tracking and paperwork that was not previously required for Mm. folks who host charging stations in Iowa. And so that you're saying will be off-putting to some would-be drivers? 
I think it's going to be more off-putting to people who might consider putting in a public charger. So, you know, we have charging stations popping up in different locations around Iowa. You know, sometimes you see them at gas stations. Sometimes, you know, um, you'll see high vs and fairway stores with charging stations near them, um, some municipal buildings, et cetera. So there are chargers, you know, in, in various locations and people who are considering maybe putting in a charger as sort of a benefit to their customers um, who, you know, want to shop there or whatever, get a little bit of a charge while they're shopping. Um, and what this law basically does is it treats any charger, even if the electricity from the charger is being given away for free, if if the bill is, is being paid by the business that's hosting the charger, for example, and the people charging their vehicle um, are charging for free, um, the business still has to pay the tax to the state for the electricity that's put in the vehicle. And so, you know, an entity like a municipality that has decided to um, put a charger outside of City Hall um, is going to end up doing the same paperwork that a gas station would have to do to submit those um, payments to the state um, twice a year. Mm -hmm. So your concern is not with the fact, and you mentioned it, that EV drivers should be paying their fair share of road maintenance, road funding. It's just how this particular law was crafted with the, the reporting that's required. That's right. I mean, it's a very broad application. So even, you know, like, for example, a hotel, uh, you see, you'll see sort of a mid-level charger where you could get an overnight charge while you're staying at a hotel. Um, the hotel would now have to um, figure out um, how to account for, you know, how much electricity is, is being used by cars that are there. They might not even have a separate meter or a way to measure it currently. Um, so they might have to do something like install a second electric meter, which has a monthly cost associated with it. They might have to spend thousands of dollars to upgrade the equipment that they have already installed in order to be able to comply with the law. So we, you know, we know from the data that's available from the Department of Energy that about 20% of current EV chargers in Iowa are, are not networked in any way. They don't communicate um, with something else. And so they are likely not currently able to track how much electricity is even going into um, the cars that they're charging. And so we think the risk with implementation of this law is that some of those kinds of charging stations could, um, could go away as businesses um, and other hosts see it as too much of a hassle and we could actually end up losing access to charging stations um, through implementation of this law. And one of the biggest concerns related to that is that about 70 to 75% of these non-networked chargers are actually um, in rural parts of the state. They're not, you know, here in the, in, in the central Iowa metro where, um, where I'm located, but they're, they're all over in other parts of the state um, that might have very little charging infrastructure to begin with. Um, we just really, we don't think right now is a time where we can really afford to lose uh, any of those chargers, mm -hmm. you know, right now. 
Okay, but there's no turning back. This is this is going to happen. So what are you suggesting? Is there a, a course correction that is realistic that could happen here? We haven't seen rules come out from the Iowa Department of Revenue um, about how this will be implemented. And so, you know, whether there is some kind of a waiver process for certain mm. electric vehicle chargers, or maybe there could be um, a grace period for folks to um, get into compliance. Because as we talked about earlier as well, this is not expected to create a lot of revenue, especially in these early years where adoption of EVs is still relatively low. And so even the administrative costs associated with this for the Department of Revenue um, will be pretty significant if they're they're trying to make sure that they're enforcing this everywhere. So, you know, as we see the rules come out, we'll be weighing in and really advocating for maybe more of a phased-in approach um, or an, an early waiver or something like that to really let people get up to speed and figure out um, how this law gets implemented in an orderly fashion. Carrie, before we say goodbye, I'd like to to zoom out quickly because this is all about combating climate change, right? And um, tell us, where are we in your estimation at present with the number of charging stations Uh, Where do we need to be? How soon? And how much does the quick adoption of EV vehicles matter when it comes to this big task of combating climate change? So we have just under 300 level two and level three chargers in the state of Iowa. And the level three are going to be like the gas station where, you know, you pull in for 20 minutes and get a quick charge. And the level two are more of the overnight chargers. Um, We've come a long way just in the last couple of years in terms of access to charging infrastructure in the state, Um, but certainly we still have a long way to go. In terms of adoption of EVs, um, there's definitely definitely a ways to go. We think that the Inflation Reduction Act is going to have um, a major impact both on the decisions of manufacturers and people when they go to, to purchase a new vehicle. Yeah. Yeah, mention the incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act, because those are quite significant for those thinking about buying an uh, an electric vehicle, aren't they? They are. And, you know, we really like that the IRA also includes um, used vehicles, um, and there are some income limits in place as well, so that we can really see folks of, you know, low and moderate incomes having access to electric vehicles as well, because, there's so many other benefits in terms of just the cost of driving. Yeah. Um, I don't own one yet, but I haven't met a an EV owner who doesn't absolutely love it. <laughs> so maybe you're in the same category, Carrie. I'm actually um, an EV driver. Um, I I am the policy person in our household, but my um, my husband is actually an engineer, so he gets us um, <laughs> into early adopter status for a lot of the the new kinds of <laughs> things. And so, um, so we've been an EV family for a while, and we really, really love it. Um, I definitely wouldn't go back. Okay, Carrie Johansson, Energy Program Director with the Iowa Environmental Council. Thank you for your insights, Carrie. Take care. Thanks, Ben. And that does it for this News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News on this February 17th. Let's groove into the weekend with Tony Daner of IPR Studio One. Hi, Tony. Hey there, Ben. What do you got for us? 
we are going to start with one of my favorite uh, younger artists who is about to release his second album, or third album, I'll explain that in a second. So excited about this. His name's Devin Gilfillian, and a kind of an R&B soul singer who's, he's in Nashville, and he's worked a lot with some of the Americana artists down there as well. Uh, he put out his brilliant debut album, Black Hole Rainbow, in 2020, one of my favorites of that year. Also released a full song-for-song cover of the classic Marvin Gaye album, What's Going On. Well, his new record's coming soon, I think in March or April. It's called Love You Anyway, and there is just a delightful music video for this song that I encourage everyone to check out. It's Devin Gilfillian with All I Really Wanna Do. All I really wanna do. 